Thank you for tuning in to the sermon webcast of Living Savior. We are one church serving in two locations, Asheville and Hendersonville, North Carolina. For more information, go to lsavior.org. The story is told of two women in Shanghai who were talking about the concept of pride, and they wondered if Hudson Taylor, that one of the greatest Asian missionaries, was ever tempted to become proud. So one of them asked his wife, and she said, well, I will ask him. So she said, Hudson, have you ever been tempted to become prideful? And he responded, with what? Well, based on all the things that you had done. And his response was, I never knew that I did anything. Story number two. Supposedly, Ben Franklin was kind of an arrogant person earlier in his life. He decided he wanted to work on 12 virtues, 12 characteristics. But he wanted to make sure that he was going to work on the right ones, and so he took that list of 12 to get some feedback from one of his friends. And his friend said, you're missing one, humility. Ben Franklin then said, I now have 13, and humility is at the top. Story number three. A young techie was being interviewed about a subject I'll talk about later, and and he mentioned that he created a private Instagram account where he uploaded pictures, but nobody could ever see them because, according to his own confession, he said it would be healthier for him to post those, to maybe have them for another day, but to not feel the pressure of having so many likes or reactions from other people and then comparing that to other people and either having prideful thoughts or becoming envious. Three stories. To my knowledge, they're all true. And they all do the same thing. They teach us something about and they exemplify humility, this very difficult thing to talk about, this abstract concept. It's not as concrete as talking about the pumping of your heart or the firing of synapses in your brain. This abstract concept can be difficult to nail down. We can give examples of it. Those three help us, but those three examples of humility also do one other thing. They all highlight something that is absolutely necessary, something that is absolutely difficult about humility. An outsider's perspective. Those encounters could have gone differently, right? Hudson Taylor could have said to his wife, why are you asking me this question? Isn't that kind of arrogant of you to ask the question? But he didn't. Ben Franklin said, could have said, where's your list of 12 virtues? Then why are you suggesting I have a 13th? But he didn't. The young techie could have just been quiet and not shared and opened up about the struggles that he had with pride and envy concerning social media, but, but he didn't. In each of these, in all of these, we not only see people who were willing to be humble, but the reason they were is because there was an outsider's perspective, they valued it, and they welcomed it. And yes, my friends, that is a very difficult thing, isn't it? Just in those three brief stories, might I ask you, what's your story? What would be the brief story by which you or somebody around you viewing you could say, this happened, and then this happened, and then you did this, and or you said that? Does that kind of make your skin crawl a little bit? Does it kind of depend on who the person is? Make no mistake, my friends, as difficult as this might be to talk about the necessity of an outsider's perspective, I will say that it is absolutely necessary and pivotal in order for us to not only understand properly the lesson that we have before us, 
but it's actually in this lesson, backwards and forwards and throughout, that we see various perspectives which don't just emulate what Jesus sees in others and what we see in others, but what others and even Jesus sees in us. But in the end, my friends, we will most importantly see, we will see Jesus for who he wants us to see that he is. And in so doing, we will appreciate this truth. Humility requires an outsider's perspective. It just does. I invite you to have that open. Luke chapter 14. Open up your Bibles if you brought them. Luke 14. There's one verse and then it jumps to verse 7 and maybe this is important to start here. Verse 1, you see the scene set. There are people who are watching. They have their perspective, right? They're watching Jesus, not because they're looking for all of the ways to compliment him because they really like him. No, they're watching Jesus because they're looking to trap him. By now, you know very well that the Pharisees and teachers of the law have become entrenched in their position opposite to Jesus, and they're looking for a way to trap him. They're watching him to wait for him to slip up in some way, as leaders often do. Maybe he'd get prideful and arrogant, maybe even angry or envious, and they would catch him in it and pin him to it. But then the tables are turned. You see those verses that are missing? These teachers of the law, they're, they're watching Jesus on the Sabbath. And Jesus, with these people watching, walks up to this man who is sick, and he basically asks these guys, so what should I do with this guy? It's the Sabbath. Should I heal him? Jesus heals the man, and they're silent. Jesus then asks them, what would you do if there was an ox or a child or somebody in need, and, and it was the Sabbath day? Would you obey this law and fail to help somebody else out? What, what would you do? They're silent. And then somehow, as they're going to this house, Jesus has this table-turning perspective. Those who were watching him failed to see that now Jesus was watching them. And what does Jesus see? What does Jesus see in these people? Back then, you, the, the place where you sat said something about who you were and how important you were compared to other people. So maybe you'd be like, I'm a little bit more important than this person, kind of, you know, mosey my way on ahead. And so people will kind of see that since I'm sitting here, I am more important than this person over here. This person over here, though, I can't really compete, so I'll just kind of make sure I stay like one step, maybe two steps down, and, and that's kind of how it worked. And, and maybe you see similar situations, too. There's the, sometimes there's the head of the table, and the closer that a person might sit to the head of a table shows how important it, this, this person is. Ultimately, Jesus points out something very interesting as he's sitting back there. He's just, he's just looking at him, and what does he see? He sees glorified children who are kind of bumping one another in line to see who gets first or to see who gets the closest to first if they can't be first. You see this with children, right? God bless the preschoolers. They had their first full week this week. It was awesome. I love watching preschoolers. They have a designated line leader and they also have a designated caboose which sets up each end of the line so it should be easy. There's just one problem. They're preschoolers. I'm going to sign out my son, and you can see one kid, he's not, the, he's not the line leader, and he's just doing, the line leader's right in front, and he's just kind of doing this thing, looking around, seeing his space shore doesn't see, and he's just kind of sneaking right in, and he's trying to bump in front, and then so, you, you hear the teachers, no, so-and-so is the line leader, you'll have your turn another day, so, it, it happens with kids, and you look at it, and it's so silly, right? Like little kids, you're not the line leader, get in the back of, well, you can't be the back of the line, because the boost is, the caboose is next special, but you can get somewhere in between, it's really that simple, Right? And so when Jesus is looking at these people, and when we see things like this, it looks totally ridiculous. But this is the way the world functions, right? Like, it's not just jockeying for position in preschool, and that's the only place where this, like, prideful jockeying happens. Really? Really? I mean, what's going on in your workplace? 
For those of you who are employers, you got the employee who approaches you with the, with the humble brag, you're like, I'm, yeah, I could have done a little bit better on the job, but you know, I mean, I made about five grand extra for you, but you know, it's nothing there. And then you got the other employee who, who might kind of throw a little jab at, at one of the, their fellow coworkers so that maybe you might think a little bit better of them and there, there's this jockeying for position. Employees, you see this too. Maybe it's your employer who reminds you all of the reasons he or she thinks that he or she should be your employer, and they list them daily, maybe at least weekly. Maybe you see fellow employees who might, might be working against you to maybe try and step up above you. Maybe there's an opening spot, and then it's fair game, and it's going to be you or somebody else. And then what happens? There's, there's this jockeying for a position. This doesn't just happen at work. This doesn't even just happen in politics as we prepare for another election season. God help us. This, this happens in the family. Siblings can, can say certain things about other siblings and parents can make children feel like less than children, and children can make parents feel like they're children. A spouse can fail to realize that their spouse is one with them, so if their spouse hurts, they hurt. Wives can walk away f- feeling unheard. Husbands walk away feeling belittled. And all of this stems from what? We see this, right? Right? Friends are talking to you, and just about every other sentence starts with I, I, me, we, I, 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 me, we, I. And all the while, you kind of walk away as though you just got hit by a tornado, wondering, could that person talk about anybody besides themselves? People who don't necessarily have the even the wherewithal to lift their heads out of their own lives to care about people around them? We see this, right? There's a conversation going on, something as simple as a conversation, and somebody's feeling excluded off to the side. You can kind of stand where Jesus is standing, and you can kind of see this in your world, right? It just kind of frustrates you, doesn't it? No? Is this just me? Am I the only one that sees this? Maybe you kind of sense where I'm going with this. That quite logically and reasonably, if we so easily see this in the world around us, then quite logically and reasonably, we must admit that the world around this, us, probably sees some of this in us too. Where do I begin with myself? <laughs> the amount of times when God laid out an opportunity, like a ball on a tee and with those huge yellow bats, you can't miss it, just set one up on a tee for me and... <laughs> Because I was so concerned with myself, I, just, I didn't even whiff. I just dropped the bat and miss altogether. A God who lays out opportunities to, to show care and compassion, to put others ahead of myself, to, to care more about what would advance somebody else than advancing myself, so, to affirm and lift up somebody else rather than me. How many times and how many ways, just this last week, did I completely biff on that? And why? Even worse yet, for what? What, what do I gain from that? From every time that I feel like I have become better than somebody or have been affirmed more than somebody, what do I really, what do I really get? Could you help me understand that? I don't know. Isn't that the worst of it? See, the worst, my friends, is not just that we, like Jesus, can kind of turn the tables and look at the Pharisees and say, like, yeah, what a bunch of arrogant jerks. It's that the world can see some of this in us. And it's that Jesus is still always around us, and what does he see? 
What does he see in your world? What does he see in your story? So easily we forget that pride so easily wants to root itself deeply in our hearts, and that is the one place where God would not have anything else reign except for him and for him alone. A heart that knows that it is nothing without him, a heart that that knows that it can do nothing apart from him. Even in this world, this social media experiment that we're living in, have you ever taken a step back and kind of thought about this whole thing? I mean, aside from I'm not going to go all old and crotchety about the whole thing and let's just delete the whole, I'm not, aside from that, the studies are through the roof as to how this can facilitate a lot of unhealthy things. I mean, I'm, I'll, I'll use it too, it's all fine and good, but I mean, have you, have you ever paused to kind of think about this? The people who use social media, to a large degree, I'm not even talking about connecting with people and that's all fine and good, communicating, that's great. I'll, it's, it's, I, I get a little nag from mom and dad if they don't see pictures of their grandkids and Facebook saves me from that, thanks to my wife. So that's a good thing. Like, there's tons of good things about it. But have you ever paused for a second and, and thought about how this is kind of a, an, an over, overall symptomatic issue concerning all of humankind, that we have people who, at least to whatever degree, are in control of the affirmation that they would receive to such a degree that they would put things out there and then judge themselves and how they compare with other people based on how other people are liked or reacted to or commented on. Ever thought about that? In fact, that article that I was mentioning before where that young techie was interviewed, it was in relation to Facebook hiding the number of likes. This, this is something that they're experimenting with. Hiding the number of likes, the total number that you might have and just giving you a, a general list of some that liked your post. And they admitted the reason why. They find it entirely unhealthy that people are so easily given to envy or pride and they don't want this tool to be a part of that. That's just social media. Do you think that's symptomatic of humankind as a whole? What does Jesus see in in our lives? I think the hardest thing and the trickiest thing for us is to walk away thinking two dangerous things, that when we walk out of here, we're just going to focus on being more humble. You want to know why that's a trick? Because if you focus more on you being humble, who are you focusing on more? Yourself. That's kind of the opposite of humility. So don't do that. Humility. We might also be tempted to think we should just be more self-deprecating and we should just be harder on ourselves. No, that's not humility either. As the axiom goes, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking about yourself less because you think about others first. So instead of walking down those two ditches or me giving you, here's five steps to be the more humbler you, how about we consider the way Jesus ends this entire lesson? See, pride and humility are so much more about who is in control than what you get. Pay attention. Who is in control when we demonstrate pride? We are either being prideful because we want control or by seeking validation and affirmation, we want something from other people. But in those acts of pride, what do we get? We get only what we can get and we get only what other people can provide. Guess how long that lasts? Remember what I said about my week? What did it get me? Nothing. But when Jesus is in control, what do you get? He gives us this rule, and there's no exceptions. Everyone, all of those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves, not maybe, not might be, will be exalted. And then he ties it to what? The resurrection of the righteous. And the only way, don't skip over this detail, the only way that Jesus can give you this rule to which there is no exception 
and also tied to the resurrection, and it can be sure, is if he is actually the one who controls the resurrection. And my friends, the tomb is still empty. So think of what this means for you. It is not focusing more on yourself or, or thinking less about yourself. It's none of those things. It's actually looking honestly at who you are, welcoming the outsider's perspective of your Savior and what he sees, and knowing full well that he takes all of that upon himself when he humbled himself to exalt you. View it this way. You have a Savior, the God of heaven, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Instead, he made himself nothing. And taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a, even death on a cross. And why would he do that? Because he loved you. He always has. And he always will. And he tells you all of this because he doesn't want pride to kill you. Because it so easily can. Instead, you would see that the Savior who was humble for you saves you and me from our pride. Saves you and me from our lack of humility. So that we would not focus on ourselves, but we would view our lives through the lens of the cross. And in so doing, everything we could ever have wanted has already been given us. Think of what the jockeying of position is wanting a higher place. But you already have the greatest place. You're a child of the king. You're a son of your savior. You're a daughter of your father in heaven. What could be better? And all of this in the resurrection that he gives you. He says, those who humble themselves will be exalted and it's tied to that resurrection. You have all your sins forgiven. There's nothing else that can be proven. There's nothing else that you can accomplish because Jesus already paid it all and that check was written for you. So what else can you and me do? Isn't that, isn't that relieving? And no longer do you and I have to worry about our weaknesses and hiding them so that other people won't see them. God already knows the worst of them and he paid for them all. No longer do we have to, to work in pride against people and jockey for position because God has given you a peace that transcends all understanding and it's going to guard your hearts and minds in Christ. You have this peace of knowing that no matter what anyone thinks about you, your Father looks at you with glowing and loving eyes. No matter how much you failed because of people who have gotten ahead, God's going to take care of them, and he's already fully taken care of you. He loves you so. And if he has already given you those things, my friends, then you and I know that this paradigm of humbling ourselves because we will ultimately be exalted, that, that is true not just in eternity, that's true right here and now. I don't know what that looks like for you this week. Maybe, maybe for you it looks like you talking to your spouse about the things that you've struggled with. You confessing your sins to your spouse. Is there anything more humbling than that? This is where I have failed you and this is where I have failed my God. But then what do you have to look forward to? Your Christian spouse will give you the greatest exaltation he or she could by proclaiming to you that you are forgiven and that you were loved and all of that is in the past, and it is taken care of. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Maybe it looks like in your work, you not losing sight of just the joy of working to the best of your fulfillment and finding contentment in that. Finding peace in that. Not worrying about this position which is here today and gone tomorrow, 
which isn't really going to fulfill your greatest desires in that bottomless pit of your heart because only God can fill the bottomless. And instead, just finding joy in the task that God has given you and carrying out that calling because the one who has called you will also equip you to carry it out. You can have that peace and contentment and no one can take that away. Not a single person can touch that. Maybe it even relates to what we've been talking about most of the morning with this Grow Sunday. What do you get from a child? Like, sure, sometimes they're cute, but then they kind of reach that phase where they're not as cute anymore. You know what I'm talking about. Like, what do you really get from a child? Diapers and sloppy eating and sassy talk. No, I'm, I'm, I'm teasing for the most part. What, what can a child really do for you? They can't really give you a reward. Maybe they hit it big and they cover your retirement. That would be awesome. But in relation to the spiritual nature that God has given them, what can you do for that child? And the reward is not for you. When you humble yourself to know that this child needs roots that are planted deeply in God's word, and God has given you not only the position, but a mouthpiece to communicate his truths that sink deep into their hearts, those don't just pay dividends on earth, but forever in eternity. You get to do that. When you bring them to opportunities where they get to grow in God's word, when you carry that out day after day, as difficult as it is, and it is, God promises them a reward too, and he uses you to give that to them. What a wonderful privilege God has given you. Humbling yourself to teach children, humbling yourself to, and, and, and me, myself, to, to view ourselves as God's children, because we never grow out of it, that need to grow in his word. And God promises you that through that, he's going to strengthen you and exalt you. What a wonderful blessing we have that God in his way now, certainly in eternity, will exalt you. Maybe it even looks like you talking to a friend and pulling a Ben Franklin, asking for an honest evaluation of how you can grow in humble living. I don't know what it is for you, and I'm not about to give you five steps, but what I will say is this. When you welcome the outsider's perspective of no one else first except for your Savior, and he points to your heart and shows you for all that it is, the reason he does that, that is not so that you would become your own savior and fix it yourself, but so that you would see that he who humbled himself completely and was exalted, God gave him the name that is above every name, and that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is your savior, my friends, and he who was exalted has most certainly promised you the, the same. So when you welcome his perspective, then you know it is he who has also saved you from your pride just as he has mine. And the dividends last for eternity. May God grant that to you all. Amen. <laughs>